Welcome to the Passive Mobile Home Park Investing Podcast with your host, Andrew Keel. This is the podcast where you can get the education you need to invest 100% passively in the highly profitable niche of mobile home parks. Welcome to the Passive Mobile Home Park Investing Podcast. This is your host, Andrew Keel. And today we have an amazing guest in Mr. Matthew Riccadella. Before we dive in, I want to ask you a real quick favor. Would you mind taking an extra 30 seconds to please head over to iTunes and rate this podcast with five stars? This helps us get more listeners, and it means the absolute world to me. So thanks for making my day with that five-star review of the show. All right, let's dive in. Matthew is the founder and CEO of Crystal View Capital. With over 19 years of experience in the real estate industry, he has personally been a principal in over $1 billion worth of real estate transactions and presently has uh, around $500 million in assets under management across the various funds that he sponsors. Matthew, welcome to the show. Thanks, Andrew. I appreciate you having me today. Excited to be here. Yeah. Would you mind starting out by telling us a little about your story and how in the world you got into manufactured housing? Yeah, I'd love to. I started uh, back in the industry. It's it's been a while. I think I bought my first park in 2006, as a matter of fact, in Orange County, California. But I started, my background is I started as a residential realtor in Southern California. Initially, I'm from New York, is where I'm born and raised, but moved out to uh, SoCal back in 2002, got started um, as a realtor and the way I built my business was I got on the phones and I, I kind of built relationships, did a lot of cold calling, a lot of door knocking, you know, things of that sort. I wasn't scared to to go to work and roll up my sleeves and built up a nice business. From there, I, I gravitated towards flipping homes. So found deals off market on the phone, built a team of of cold callers that were working with me to um to find owners of these properties that were willing to sell to us. And that worked well until the Great Recession of 2008, 9, 10. And I was looking for, I was looking for assets that, that produced a passive income that was sustainable and was predictable and reoccurring. And I invested across all commercial asset classes, ranging from multifamily, industrial, retail, and office. And what I found was manufactured housing communities, by and large, delivered that predictable revenue stream that I was looking for more so than all the other asset classes. And I could really buy them advantageously because at that at that stage, MH really was not in vogue like it is today. Today, you've got a lot of PE shops, institutional capital, which are chasing these deals. But back then, it was kind of the redheaded stepchild, Andrew. Financing was difficult. You know, it was mostly seller financing is the way that we bought deals. And I applied that same strategy, um, that same sales strategy of focusing and finding these deals off market, building relationships with the mom and pops. Um, so that that was my story, built up a really nice business um, of personal assets. And then in 2014, realized this is really a scalable business. And along with our other core asset class of self-storage, we, we built a, uh, a fund structure, started raising capital, and um, you know it, it's gone extremely well for us. Wow, that is fantastic. And you said you bought your first park in 2006? That's right. 
Yeah, in Anaheim, and, California. In Anaheim, California. And tell me, you know, what what did that look like? You know, and and how did you, you know, get get educated on mobile yeah. parks just as an asset class? Um, you know, back then, right now, there's a lot of boot camps available, a lot of universities, which I would encourage folks to go to to learn the business. Back then, a lot of that didn't exist. So it was just kind of bootstrapping your way up. You learn from your mistakes. There were some books available. I think I read one by Frank Rolfe back then that was helpful for me. Yeah, I mean, that. I remember I called these folks back in 2006 on this particular park. It was a cold call. Um, you know, they were kind of retiring. Rents were way below market. The property had a ton of deferred maintenance, bought it right solved the deferred maintenance issues. We repaved it, put a new fence. There was actually a laundry facility in there, replaced all the equipment, put, encouraged residents to put skirting on their homes, brought rents up to a market level. And I think we, we sold it for double what we paid for it about a year and a half later. So it was a good entry into the industry. And you know, from there, just, just went off and, and kind of put my head down and replicated that process over and over again. Problem was, I never seemed to have enough capital. There were so many deals out there. Now it's kind of the opposite. Now there's plenty of capital, not many opportunities. Um, I think they're starting to come again, by the way. But back then, opportunities were everywhere. But, you know, I was starved for capital. And um, that's why I got into the fund business. That is fantastic. And, and your model seems very similar to ours. You know, a lot of cold calling, you know, direct to owner. Uh, mom and pop acquisitions. Uh, maybe tell us a little bit how your strategy has changed, you know, since 2006, you know, how big was that first park that you bought? And, and, and maybe, you know, the utility infrastructure, you know, yeah. how has that, has your criteria changed at all since, since then? Well, size has become more so our friend, you know, rewind back to the first park we bought. I think it was nine sites um, to mm. put things into perspective. You know, but it was in Anaheim, which, you know, parks are tough to come by in that market. You know, we recently bought a park a couple quarters ago that was about 432 sites that was in Iowa and fund in our third fund. And um, right now we've got close to 50 million in, in new acquisitions. We're close to having under contract the majority are parks and most of them are larger 250 site plus communities is kind of where we like to be. That's not to say we won't go smaller, but to answer your question in terms of setup, you know, we'll do private utilities. We'd prefer not to have them. We'll do park-owned homes. We'd prefer not to have them. Really, our, our strategy and our focus is identifying underperforming assets and adding value to them, put simply. And, you know, that could range from rents below market. It could range to, you know, occupancy issues. Right now, I'll I'll tell you, we've been able to fill more sites within the last 12 months than I've ever seen in my career over the last 19 years, you know, with interest rates where they are, with folks having the inability to buy stick-built homes and the ever-increasing demand for affordable housing and lack of supply thereof has made mobile home communities an ideal destination for a lot of folks that, that need affordable housing. And that segment, as you know, is growing. So I think we're in a really in, a, in an opportune spot here to grow our occupancies and um, to have some significant pricing power as a result of that as well. 
So do you guys do a lot of infill? You know, tell me about that value add. Is it, you know, sub metering, infill uh, projects? And then, you know, you said you bought a big, big community in Iowa. What's yeah. the footprint for, for Crystal View Capital? Yeah, so let's use that park as an example. They had a pretty large water and sewer bill. I think it was to the tune of about $14,000 a month. So what we did is we submetered that water and sewer and passed that expense through to our residents. We identified that lot rents were, you know, roughly 35% below market. We brought them up just shy of a market level. We don't want to push beyond market. We like to be a little bit below. Um, I think it builds goodwill within the, uh, the community. We spent about $1.2 million completely repaving all the roads in the communities and residents were ecstatic. You know, we've kind of brought back on a clubhouse that was non-existent for many years. And now residents can have functions in those clubhouses, cookouts, things of that sort. So within a short period of time, we've increased net operating income through raising rents and, and cutting uh, our metering water and sewer um, we've increased NOI to the tune of, you know, close to $200,000, which, Jeez. you know, I mean, at a five, six cap is close to, you know, $4 million of, of value. So that's just an, one example of many of, of the opportunities and the value add components that Crystal View sees and executes on. That's wonderful. Yeah. I mean, it just shows you right there. It's the nuts and bolts. It's not complex, right? It's not rocket science. But it's not easy either. I mean, I'm sure climbing underneath of 432 sites to put those submeters on, you know, and, and making sure that that was done in Iowa, which needs, you know, I'm sure it needs heat tape and, and yep. insulated well. You know, it's not it's not rocket science, but it you got to roll up your sleeves and get to work. But I mean, it's worth it, right? You you added 200k in NOI. I mean, like you said, at a at a six cap, that's like 3.5 million dollars in added value right there. So. That's and that's we're not, awesome. Yeah, and we're not done, by the way. You know, we're starting to bring in new homes and used homes, and, and the demand for homes in this market is very high. Mm. We anticipate we'll probably fill, you know, 10 sites a year. You know, lot rent right now is about 450. Mm. So, I mean, you could you could do the math there of um, the additional value add that we'll have over the, the holding period of this investment. So that's fantastic. We're really happy with this one. So do you guys buy in the Midwest? Will you buy anywhere? You know, you're still looking in California? You know, we look across all 50 states, Andrew. We're very opportunistic, but we're looking for those those special situations. You know, again, where they're underperforming, non-performing. Typically, it's we're buying from mom and pops because mm -hmm. we're building relationships with them. We're also seeing, I will, I will mention this, we see opportunities from groups that aren't mom and pops that are more sophisticated owners. But you made a comment earlier that, you know, getting below homes and rolling up your sleeves, a lot of the newer entrants thought this was just, hey, it's very easy business. How difficult can it be to operate a mobile home park? I could tell you it's very management intensive. Mm -hmm. We manage all of our own assets, by the way. A lot of groups are more or less capital allocators. So they'll go out, raise capital similar to us. Um, but what they do is they just put that capital to work and they find third party property management firms to to basically execute on the strategy, whatever that strategy might be. 
the way we think about it is who's going to care more about that process, a third party fee generator who's collecting rent or the actual owner. So we actually oversee and undertake that entire value create value add process. And we self-manage through an affiliate entity, all of our assets across MH and storage. And I think that's driven a lot of value for our investors. Yeah. Tell us about that. Tell us about that management company you've built, how many sites you've managed and, and how long you've been self-managing. Yeah. So we've, we've self-managed right from the very start. I had a bad experience with a third-party company. There was some theft involved and you know we just felt we could do it better. We've created and developed the systems. We've refined them. We have a team of about 170, 50 of which are headquartered here in Las Vegas. Hmm. And um, you know, we, we have the ability to have the, I think it's twofold. One, it's a property management function, but two, it's having the vision to see the value add strategy and the ability to execute on it. And, you know, we've got both. So it's, it's served us quite well. To answer your question, we have about 4,300 sites presently in the portfolio across 30 different communities. And, you know, that's located in north of 15 states throughout the country. That is fantastic, man. That is really awesome. Wow. Yeah. What a portfolio. And thank uh, you. Maybe you can tell me, you know, what do you think is the toughest hurdle in mobile home park investing? Like what's the what's the thing that most operators can't overcome? That's a great question. I, I think, you know, going back to the answer I was just giving, you know, some of these newer entrants think that this is a very easy business. And it can be, by the way. You know, some parks are effortless and other parks are heavy value add. It's just, do you have the ability to roll up your sleeves and, and, and go to work and watch these assets? Because you have to be all over them because the mo moment you kind of take your thumb off the pulse, they could get away from you. And I think that's what happens with some of these larger groups. You know, they come into the space and they think it's easy to manage and yeah, there's value add, it's possible, but you have to work it hard. You know, you have to go and find homes, bring those homes in, set them up, create a home sales program, find a way to finance these homes, work with the residents, um, hear their concerns, understand what they are, and then to answer those questions for them. If people want pools or playgrounds, clubhouses, offer it to them and it, and it may help you drive revenue. So it's really it's being very hands-on, having a grassroots effort, having a great team that's communicating with the on-site folks and, um, you know, being there to serve your customer. And we've been able to do that. And that's driven a lot of value for us. So I think that's the probably the large disconnect for folks coming into this industry, just thinking that it's, it's a layup and it's very easy. And sometimes it is, but for more times, more times than not, and it isn't, and you really need to work it. Totally. But yeah. But the uh, the rewards are there if you do in spades. Yeah, no, I, I definitely agree. Uh, tell us about that infill process. It seems like that's something that you guys are adding a lot of value with. You said a mix of new and used homes. I would yeah. love to just hear how you're doing that. How are you sourcing your used homes? And sure. And, yeah, would love that. Be happy to. So I think really what it what it comes down to is understanding the marketplace. You know, each market is different. You could be in a higher demographic where you're going to be able to sell new homes all day long, which is ideal. And we have some markets where that is the case for us. We have got several communities in Wisconsin, 
um, down in Texas where we're doing just that and it's working extremely well for us. In other communities, you know, new homes, the demographic isn't there. You know, the income's not there to sell new homes. So you have to bring in rent to owns or bring in used homes and have a program to finance those communities. Right now we're developing, we actually have another affiliate entity, which is a lending company that we're getting registered in the states that we own in, where we're going to provide financing for residents within these communities, because that's a huge void, Andrew. A lot of banks don't want to finance these lower tiered credits, these higher risk residents. But, you know, this is really their most valuable investment. And the default rate is quite low, although they have bad credit, you know, bad credit history and FICO scores. We'd be happy to finance them and it helps us fill our communities up quicker and it helps us move more towards home ownership versus rentals, which enhances pride of ownership, in my opinion. So um, and and the way we find our pre-owned homes is we actually have bonus programs for our asset managers and our on-site. So they're scouring Craigslist. They're looking in local newspapers, finding these homes. You know, we're making cash offers, moving them into our community. In some markets, we own um, actually the moving trucks, which makes that process mm. easier. We have crews that set the homes up, block level skirt, get the utilities all set up. And, you know, then we have the home sales side. We have a back office here that kind of assists and oversees that feature. So, I mean, we've we've got it soup to nuts from start to finish. The system's um, really dialed in, and that's allowed us to to deliver the the value and the returns that we have for our investors. That's great. Yeah, it sounds like you guys do. You really have hit it on all the different platforms. You mentioned earlier you're a fan of the tenant-owned homes, but you also have some park-owned homes. Maybe yeah. you know, tell us about that. You know, do you do rentals? Yeah. You know, what do you prefer? And and uh, yeah, how do you guys look at that? Sure. The preference um, for myself and across the industry, I would say by and large is tenant owned homes. I think it it further enhances pride of ownership. It also makes it easier to finance. Um, you know, the the main lending source for this industry for acquisitions and, and refis is Fannie and Freddie. And they don't like park owned homes. They'll make exceptions. But um, by and large, they're looking for tenant owned communities. So to the extent we buy a park with park-owned homes, we try to transition them over to sales and tenant-owned homes. It just makes life easier. And you also don't have to maintain um, those homes, which is yeah. you know, one of the largest reasons why investors gravitate to mobile home communities versus multifamily is that you don't have turnover as much. You have stickier tenants. It's cost prohibitive to move those homes out of the community. But repair and maintenance, I mean, toilets break, sinks clogged up when they own their home, that's their responsibility. When it's a rental, it's kind of like an apartment unit. You've got to maintain and fix that stuff. So those are the reasons why we like tenant owned homes versus park owned homes. Yeah, no, that's that's great. That's same with us. We'd like to convert them to tenant owned homes as well. I would love to, to know. I know you're based in Las Vegas. I know we were talking before we hit record here about Jeremiah Boucher and uh, Patriot Holdings. You know, how do you guys yeah. know each other? Did you guys get into the you know the business at the same time? Yeah. It seems like you guys have a very similar story with cold calling and and just yeah. trying to, to get crafty with it, and and also being members of the Scott Shields Commercial uh, Mastermind. Yeah, yeah, sure. Jeremiah is a dear friend. I've known him, gosh, 
believe it or not, close to 30 or 30 years, 20 years. We started in the business together, very similar backgrounds. He was a realtor too. So we kind of just shared stories and strategies together. You know, we made a lot of calls and kind of built, refined our skills as salespeople in our early 20s. And then, you know, moved from being salespeople to investors. And that's how we kind of met Scott Scheel. And we learned how to size up an opportunity and what what, it, what an opportunity hinges on. What are the important components? And then started making small investments for our own account. And we actually JV'd on a lot of deals together. And, um, you know, I was fortunate enough to help him when he launched his fund concept. And he's done extremely well also. So it's just been a lot of fun to have that camaraderie and that that friendship and and to do it with uh with somebody that you call a friend. Yeah, it's so cool. You know, it's such a it seems like, you know, hey, there's like 50,000 mobile home parks across the US, but it it's more of a tight-knit community, you know, that everybody knows each other and you know when you they go do. to conferences small world. Things, it's a small world. Yeah, that's really awesome. Okay, uh let me let me see here. What mistakes in mobile home park investing have you made that, you know, our listeners can learn from? How much time do you have? <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, most of the mistakes luckily have been at the beginning of my career and they've been small in scale. You know, I think one of the biggest um, mistakes and flaws you could make as a novice coming into the industry is placing the park owned home income into your top line revenue and then basically capping out that, the applying a cap rate to that net operating income that's associated to a park owned home because. It's really not. You need to back that out. You need to treat those homes as a wholesale purchase outside of the lot rent. So, you know, as an example, let's say you have a park owned home and it's rented for $500. The lot rent's $250 for easy math. And um, the park owned home component is $250. Only underwrite the $250 of lot rent and not the park owned home income. Because when you go to a bank or you go to sell it, any other buyer is going to do just that. And now you're going to take a big haircut on valuation. So that's one of the largest um, mistakes I think a first-time investor can make. Also, understand the utility setups. Um, a mistake I've made is, is not understanding the condition of a private system and subsequent to that, having to invest considerable CapEx to bring that system up to par. So you really, I'm not saying don't buy because you have private utilities, just understand what you're getting into and reserve the capital if it if it's needed um, or ask the seller to make those improvements before you purchase. So I think those are probably, probably the biggest flaws you could make and, you know, understand the marketplace, understand, you know, selecting managers, management is huge. Mm. And we just started offering, I'll tell you this. You know, we've had a lot of requests from actual sellers with who we're buying from to say like, hey, you know, we've heard about you guys you do a great job. Can you do third party management of of our community? Because the time in our life has come where we want to spend more time with the grandkids. But at the same time, it's not the right time to actually liquidate. We'd love to find a great third party manager and not many exist in this industry. So we're just starting to offer that service. So um, if you're going to do it yourself, um, just understand what you're getting into. If you're selecting a third-party company, you know, really do your homework and your research there to to pick the right company. But um, totally, 
for those we, folks that are interested, our, our company, our third party is Osprey Management. That's the name okay. of our management company. Very cool. Yeah, I didn't know you guys offered that. That's really cool because, I mean, it is yeah. a lot to set up these systems and to get the scale you need to be able to hire the people and put them in the right spots. It's it's taken a lot of time for us to do that. Um, you know, we I will say we bought a, pa- a portfolio of three parks from a uh, some owners that were letting it be th- third party managed and their expense ratios were like 57 percent. Oh, the three. Yeah, it was it was insane. And we took those over and now they're down to like 35%. So, you know, it can be expensive uh, to do that kind of stuff. I guess, what are your typical expense ratios look like on, you know, across your portfolio? Yeah, it depends. First off, just a quick comment there. Uh, kudos to you and your team for taking that expense ratio down. Um, we've seen similar expense ratios on third-party managed communities. And in fact, when we find weak third-party managers, we try to see what else they're managing yeah. to see what else we could buy because it's a pretty easy value add. Sure. But to answer your question, kind of where our expenses fall in line, it's really going to depend on the market. Um, it's going to depend on the state. Some t- some states have a lot higher property tax than others. So um, that's going to drive a lot of it. Also, it's going to be, are you in the more northern exposures where you're going to need to plow more? Um, you know, some places down in Texas, landscaping can get out of line pretty quickly. Mm. Um, so it's a lot of that's going to depend, but I'd say by and large, you know, we're in the, on the low side, 36, 37 to, you know, where you have really high property taxes, like we do in New York and Connecticut, you know, you could be upwards to 43, 44, 45%. Sure. No. Yeah. Uh, thank you for sharing that. Sure. Um, so you guys will buy in, you know, blue states. I know a lot of operators kind of shy away from, you know, the Illinois, the Californias, the New Yorks. How do you guys look at that? Yeah, I guess we're a glutton for punishment, right? Um, so, yeah, we own in New York. We we actually have a pretty decent sized footprint there. It is rent control. Um, that's another thing we've prided ourselves on. We've learned the rent control laws. We've got great counsel. We abide by all of those rules and, and regulations, but you could still create value. We're adding homes in there. We're filling vacant sites. So it still works for us. Um, Connecticut doesn't have rent control, but that's, you know, a bluer state, um, high property tax. But we've bought a portfolio there that we're doing really well with. So I being opportunistic, I wouldn't shy away from certain states. Just know what you're getting into. And if you can't get comfortable, then then don't buy there. Um, yeah. But at the same time, don't let the tax tail or the regulatory tail wag the dog, so to speak. I don't know if you want to just go into the red states and you buy a park that the economics don't work. Mm. You know, that, that that's not going to work out too well either. So that's a great you know, point. You know, just understand what you're getting into. Underwrite the deals. We use financial models. We have an investment committee. We We stress the deal across rent control and you know, issues that could happen, CapEx, and we're pretty conservative with our underwriting. And and once those deals make sense, um, you know, we'll pull the trigger understanding those risks. That's smart. Yeah, no, that makes a ton of sense. What does a good market look like to you guys? And do you have certain metrics you look at, you know, median home price, you know, income levels, anything yeah. like that? Yeah, um, we, we do look at the fundamentals. We want to understand is their job growth, is the local economy growing? Is it shrinking? 
you know, some markets are shrinking, quite frankly, and, and you're going to lose occupancy. So you, un- you want to understand what you're getting into. The one nice thing of, of MH compared to storage is you virtually have no new supply coming to market. So one of the issues with storage is understanding that new supply coming out because it's going to impact your ability to grow revenues. With parks, that's really n- never going to be an issue, never has been an issue for us. But what could be an issue is populations that are shrinking if you're dependent on one major employer. Um, we've seen a park in Kansas like this where it was a meat packer was the main employer. And I mean, it employed virtually 70 to 80 percent of that park. It was doing well. But what would happen if that employer left that market? I mean, you'd be in major, you'd have major issues. Yeah. So if you get comfortable with that level of risk, fine. We couldn't. Um but those are the things that that we're underwriting to that we're doing our due diligence on before we we purchase a park. That's great. So if you had to pick one asset class, either self-storage or mobile home parks to invest in, which would you choose and why? Yeah, actually get that question a lot, you know, and unfortunately there's not an easy answer and that's why we do both, honestly, Andrew. It's what I call it the best of both worlds. And what I mean by that is storage has extremely low operating expenses. So you get cash on cash returns pretty much day one. Parks, on the other hand, if you're doing your job and you're bringing in homes and filling vacant sites, that cash flow may not be as strong. But you know when you go to sell the community or down the road, when you refi and you kind of fill and you stabilize, your cash flow is extremely strong. So you get more of a residual pop on the parks, in my opinion, and more of a cash on cash upfront on the storage. And that's why we've we've built our funds with both asset classes. So you're getting the best of both worlds. But I, I can't really choose one over the other. I will say this, going into the market we're going into today, I I tend to lean more towards parks just that I think that demand for affordable housing is as strongest as I've ever seen it in my career. So that, that would feedback. be my, no, my I, I appreciate that. Yeah, no, that's, that's great feedback. I appreciate you sharing that. Uh, yeah. You know, to piggyback on that, what do you think the future of mobile home park investing looks like? And, and, you know, how do you see them fitting in with the direction the economy is going where interest rates are, super high right now and they went up really fast everybody's talking about a possible recession yeah what are your thoughts well speaking of the asset class it's become a lot more mainstream i made the comment of it being a redheaded step stepchild when i got started in my career back in 06 today i mean the blackstones of the world all these large private equity shops institutional capital is all investing you know wants exposure to manufactured housing storage as well the issue for them is it's challenging for them to go to scale. They're accustomed to writing, you know, $500 million, billion dollar checks. This is a very fragmented business where the only way you're going to do that is to buy massive portfolios. So the future that I see is more and more interest from institutional capital coming into the space, which is going to drive valuations, I believe. And, and with Fannie and Freddie being a captive lender, um, while interest rates have risen dramatically, their spreads over the 10-year only 170, 180. Yeah. Compare that to CMBS, you know, you're still getting, we're getting deals done in the low sixes. I'm not mm-hmm. saying it's great compared to where it was 
24 months ago where it was sub three, but all things considered, it's not bad. Yeah, no, that's great feedback. That's wonderful. Yeah, I, I was at SECO. It's like a, a conference for community owners uh, this past week. And one of the presenters said that, you know, something like only 3% of the mobile home communities in the country are owned by like the top 10 operators. So yep. it's still highly fragmented. There's still so many mom and pop owners that own, you know, one or two communities. And to be able to, like you said, those big black stones of the world that want to buy a huge portfolio, it's really tough to find those, those big that's, you know, portfolios. So you can't write a big enough check, right? That's right. And usually those players that have those large portfolios really know what they have. I mean, so yeah. they're going to have to pay up for them. And a lot of these REITs, they're not selling. So, yeah. you know, what we do is we're aggregators. We're out there finding, you know, these medium-sized communities and, um, you know, at, at some stage in the game, once one of these larger operators really wants to go to scale and they're willing to pay a premium for it, we'll probably divest. But, you know, we'll continue to buy more. And I think opportunities are coming just because it's it's harder to, you know, obtain debt financing right now. So I think that cap rates have actually expanded, I want to say, over the last six to 12 months. And um, I think that that's probably going to be a, a trend that continues at least for the next, for the near term, I would say, at least the next 12 months. So we're a buyer very much so in this environment. That's great. Yeah. No, I think I've seen a lot of stuff from brokers where in the past they would never return your call, but now they're actually calling me and, and, yes. and making sure you see a deal. So it's interesting how the tides have turned. Yep. I'm seeing the same thing and agreed. Yeah. Uh, so for Matthew, for passive investors, you know, we're talking LPs, what do you think are the most important things that they need to look out for when investing into the, the mobile home park asset class, either via a fund like yours or one-off syndications, you know, similar to what we do, what should they be looking for and what questions should they ask? Yeah. If you're going to be passive, meaning you're not going to be an active owner operator, I think you know, that's a way to go for folks that really don't want to create a career here, because I think that's what you have to do to be an effective operator and, you know, do this full time. I don't think this is a, a passive gig unless you're really investing in an operator like RLPs are, as an example. But for those of you that want to be passive, what I would say is really vet your sponsors, do your homework, do your research. Um, a lot of groups out there, and I've made this comment, are merely capital allocators. So they're out there, they're raising capital. Um, they're finding a third-party manager to manage the investment. They really don't have their thumb on the pulse like we do. And then they're finding deals, frankly, by participating in auctions and through brokers. Nothing wrong with that. But how much value is there if you're the high bidder? You know, mm. for your investors, and how much value are you providing for your investors? I think for us. I feel good about it because, you know, we're finding these deals off market and then we're self-managing them. I think that's a lot of value creation for our investors. And the, and the other thing, the other very important point is make sure who, whatever sponsor you select, they believe in what they're doing and they're willing to back it up with their own money. Um, for us in particular, we, we make very large, um, actually eight digit investments into our funds as an LP. So, you know, I like to say we do that for two reasons. One, selfish reasons. I don't know where to get a better return than Crystal View. And number two, we want a strong alignment of interest and we like to eat our own cooking. And we think that creates a strong bond. Our investors appreciate 
that we're in this together. This isn't a fee generation game. You know, we think about it like an owner. So I would make sure whoever you decide to invest in is thinking about it like an owner and not a sponsor. Oh, that's great feedback. Do you have any ideas of how they could tell if their, you know, GP is a capital allocator versus, you know, one of the, the boots on the ground operators or questions they should ask? Yeah, I've seen a lot of that. I've seen a lot more of that. What you're talking about, where it's like, hey, yeah. I'm raising money, you know, but I'm raising money for them. They're the ones actually going to be doing the work. Yeah, um, I mean, I guess two logical questions are: Are you actively managing these investments, and how do you find your deals? Mm. Yeah, you know, that's great. That's great. And because you're right, how because of how strong both asset classes have been as of late. You know, more and more new entrants have come in, and that's fine. Nothing wrong with healthy competition. And not to say that you won't get good returns through folks that are purely capital allocators, but just understand what you're getting into. Yeah, yeah, that's great. That's great advice. What does the perfect mobile home park look like in your eyes and why? Perfect mobile home park. Well, I would say an infill location in a larger metropolitan area all park-owned homes, you know, lot rents are ever-growing, public utilities build directly to the residents, and no deferred maintenance. Mm. Those don't come across my desk very often, and if they do, you're paying extremely low cap rates. <laughs> yes, yes. So that, that would be the ideal park. But sometimes you could buy um, parks that don't check those boxes and turn it into that. You can't you can't reproduce real estate, right? If you buy something way out in the sticks, you can't replicate an infill location. But, you know, by hard work and effort, you could take a community that has park-owned homes, convert it over to a tenant-owned community. You could um, get your roads paved. You could do things to kind of create an ideal community if you have the vision and you have the creativity there without paying up for it. That's good. Yeah, totally. Uh, what's the biggest threat to mobile home park investing in your eyes? You know, there's not many, and that's what makes it so compelling, honestly. I would say if they found a lower form of affordable housing, I don't know what that is. Um, that would be a, obviously a threat. If municipalities basically opened up the floodgates for new development, that would be a threat. But at the same time, it kind of wouldn't be because it's cost prohibitive. I mean, think about what it would cost, even if it was free game to build mobile home parks anywhere. Think about the costs and the timing involved oh, yeah. to get a community up and running. I mean, where would their rents have to be to pencil based off those costs? You know, so there's just, there's not many threats you would be your own threat if you didn't buy right and if you didn't manage right. So you could be your, your best friend or your own worst enemy. Yeah, that's, that's great feedback. Yeah, there was another operator I saw that overpaid for something and was you know, raising rents really fast and ended up on the front page of the newspaper. You know, And it's, hey, that's not how you add value. You add value that's to right. what you're doing, right? You're paving the roads, you're fixing deferred maintenance, you're infilling homes. You can't just put it on the backs of the the existing tenants, so that's important. Yeah, I'll make it. I'll make a comment there. You bring up a good point. Unfortunately, there are some bad operators that kind of give us all a black eye, but there's a lot of great operators out there that add a ton of value for their investors and their residents. 
And we shouldn't all be kind of boxed into that category. So it's it's unfortunate that 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 happens. But media, as you know, you know, doesn't always highlight the positives of of us as owners. They usually sure. find that one bad actor and they put that on the front page and they they say we're all the same. And that's obviously not true. Yeah, hundred percent agree. Um, Matthew, thank you so much for coming on the show. I mean, there are several golden nuggets here that our listeners will walk away with. If anyone would like to get a hold of you or Crystal View Capital, what's the best yeah. way for them to do that? Yeah, you could visit our website at www.crystalviewcapital.com. If you're interested in making a passive investment, you could reach out to us at invest at crystalviewcapital.com. If you're interested in third-party management, um, please visit our website at www.osprey-management.com and um, be happy to speak to anyone on a on a one-off basis if they reach out. Awesome. Matthew, what's one last bit of important advice you would give an interested passive investor before we sign off? You know, I think I think we hit on it. You know, keep listening to these podcasts that you're putting on. Try to educate yourself. I mean, education is key and that's probably your most valuable asset. You know, even beyond buying right and doing all the things we talked about on this podcast, educate yourself and invest in yourself and um, it will pay you back tenfold plus. Awesome. Thank you so much, Matthew, for coming on the show. Absolutely, Andrew. Thank you for your time. It's been a pleasure. That's it for today, folks. Thank you so much for tuning in. Hey, are you getting value out of this show? If so, would you mind please going over to iTunes and leaving the show a quick five-star review? I have a goal of hitting over 100 five-star reviews by the end of 2021. And it would mean the absolute world to me if you could help contribute to that. Thanks ahead of time for making my day with your five-star review of the show.